Good morning. Please turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. I'll be reading 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want us to notice first this morning, there are some really key words in what I think Peter is doing in this letter, and they are the words, Beloved, I urge you. He's going to do it again in chapter 4. It's signifying the first Huge, major break. He says, I've been doing something, Peter's saying, from chapter 1, verse 1, up to chapter 2, verse 10. Now, secondly, here we go, I urge you here. What we have seen over the last few months in First Peter up to this point has been radically vertical. God's act in the Gospel. His inheritance laid up for you. You hope in Him. God has made you a people. He caused you to be born again. He chose you. He made you His spiritual house. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so you've got this vertical heart issue going on with God. Now, beloved, I urge you, and this opens up this section. He didn't do it this way because it's a letter. But if there were a chapter 1 and chapter 2, this is now chapter 2. Now that this is true about you, how are we believers to function in this broken, sinful world as foreigners and aliens? So much so that there's numbers of sections that he's going to go to. This morning, what we're going to see in these two verses is the big, large backdrop how do you conduct your lives in the world at large among the Gentiles? That's his word for, because mainly he's speaking to Gentile believers. He means Gentiles in the sense of those who are yet unconverted. How do you function now? Then he's going he's gonna to really meddle. Because he's going to go next to say, okay, you live in the Roman Empire originally, or you live in California United States of America, or you may be living in communist China, or you could have been living in the Soviet Union 20 years ago. And he's going to say, you live, not in anarchy, there's some type of civil government. How are you as a believer to deal with that, to obey that, to function with that? He, he's going to write then next, some of you are actually slaves. You're owned. Slavery was huge in the Roman Empire. Vast percentages of people did not have their freedom. They were owned. That was their system of, of economics. And he, he's going to say, as a believer now, what does that mean for you? Even if you have an abusive and unjust master, he's going to meddle. He's going to meddle in your marriage. Are you married? 
believer? Are you a wife? You have a particular role. And this is how you function. Are you a husband? You have a particular distinct role. And this is how you function. And he's going to go on to believer to the believer. (laughs) And if you haven't found out yet, we hurt each other. He's going to say, this is how you go on loving one another. And he's going to go on to say, in the world, it's broken, you will suffer. This is the way to suffer. So this is this big, large section he's opening up this morning. And so over the next weeks, he's going to really bother us where we really live. Let's pray. Father, by Your grace, I beg of You this morning and in the weeks to come to give to us, Your people, the mercy to delight in having our lives meddled in. Give us the grace to hear the beauty of Your commands which flow out of the glorious Gospel and cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, in verses 11 and 12, I think what we have here is the purpose statement of the church. Uh, In general, and in local churches, and in abundant grace. The purpose of the church laid out here is, because this, this is the overall thing that we're going to see before we get into the nitty gritty of how he's telling us here to function, is the salvation of the soul. It, it, are you a believer? It's about the salvation of your soul, ongoingly. And it is not unrelated, but directly connected to the glory of God in this text. So, let's see. Verse 11 first. He says to Christians, he's assuming all that he's written here now. So assume that's true of you. You're a believer. He's grabbed hold of you. You're his. His. He says to you now, you're in a war. You're in a war. For the soul. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions or desires of the flesh which wage War against your soul. Our souls are in a war. They're being buffeted whether you know it or not. And they're ultimately in danger of being destroyed. You may have a Jesus said it. What good is it if you, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's a key. It's a key to this text that he's doing here. When I said, the world. He knows we live in the world. And the world is not on your side in this battle. 
the world, the culture, whether it's first century Roman Empire or 20th century Southern California, it is not there to help you win this war. It does not give attention to this. And that is why born-again people feel and act as if they're foreigners, aliens in this world. You remember how the Apostle John wrote it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17? He said to the church, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the desires, here we go, same phrase, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father. But it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Our culture is not concerned about our souls. It is predominantly concerned about what is trivial. And so Peter says, No wonder. You're sojourners, believer. You're aliens. You're foreigners. You're coming from a radically different culture. If what he's written up to chapter 2, verse 10 is true of you. And we see now in this text that directly, inseparably connected to the soul's battle is the glory, the radiance, the beauty of who God is. Verse 12. Keep your conduct, the way you live, your behavior, among unbelievers, the Gentiles. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, let me just put this, they'll be wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me just make a... How do you understand that? This is what I think he's writing here. Because there is a way in which, in wrath, on judgment day, God is being glorified. But I think what he is saying here is that so that these, along with you, when Jesus comes back on second coming and on judgment day, these unbelievers, many of these people, will be with you glorifying God for their salvation. I think he's saying that the way you conduct your life is inseparable from personal evangelism. But we have to say, we've got to back up and say, look, he didn't say with these words, be careful how you conduct your life. Conduct it in an an appropriate, honorable, excellent way so that on the day of visitation, they will be saved. He didn't say it that way. But I think that's what he means. 
But here's what we have to do. It's really easy. Most of you know what I'm talking about. If you've been around as a Christian long enough, you know it's easy. We do it because in our culture as Christians, I try not to do it. And that is flippantly used terms. Christianese. When you read the Bible, God is not having the apostles nor the prophets speak flippantly. So when He says it this way, so that they will glorify God. It's not just Christian speak. Think about, why do you do that, Peter? And I think the answer is we saw it last, in the last sermon in the, in the last couple of verses before this. Because Peter knows that even in salvation, the ultimate centerpiece is not men, women, humanity. It is God. He is radically God-centered as God's mouthpiece. That's why I think he says, so that in the day of visitation, along with you, in their salvation, they may glorify God. And so he says to us believers, do not let slander things that you are accused of by unbelievers in the world, in your family, in your workplace, in the culture, in the ball field. Don't let what is being spoken against you as you've been an evildoer, don't give it any validation. Because by your living, that is part of the means of these unbelievers coming to saving faith. Do you see that? That's what I think he's saying here. But he makes it clear. The ultimate purpose of that in their salvation is God's glory. Even in evangelism, God is central. Not man. Peter is clearly saying to us that if we live in such a way that our lives don't point to something beyond the culture that everyone else is living for, then to that extent, we're just like them and we've just become a mirror of the idolatry of the cultures we live in. Period. It should be a scary thing to to live in the culture of 21st century Southern California so comfortably that there's nothing about the way we live our lives that points to anything outside of it. Our lives impact unbelievers evangelistically. Whether you like it or not, whether you try to consciously or not, Professing Christians' lives are impacting unbelievers positively or negatively, and it is a pendulum. And you can't fake it. One day, within you, you either are repentant and affectionate and delighting in whom Christ is to you to one degree or another, or you're not. And every day is a new battle. And it shows up ultimately in how we act. So these are the two great issues that are 
inseparable in this text as we saw they were inseparable from last week's text. It is the battle of the Christians for the Christian's soul every day, which is fought, we're going to see in this text, it's fought on the field of desires which are inseparable from the outflow of how you live. That's the first great issue. And all of that is directly and inseparably connected to God's glory. Remember in the text right before this, we saw in the last sermon, Peter says why God saved you. He saved you so that you would proclaim the excellencies of Him. And now He's showing us that that proclamation is not merely word, but it's life. And I think because of the radical God-centeredness that God's glory is at stake means that for real evangelism in the Christian's life, as Christians who are in community and local church life, that evangelism as it goes out into how you live in daily life, families, workplace, etc., for real evangelism to happen in the church and outside the church, we are desperate as foreigners to be God-centered people. We are desperate, if in no other place, in the family and in the local church, to at least there be God-centered. To at least be able to come away with your family as, as believers and know that God is the center and to at least come away when we gather away from the workplace, the world, for an hour a week, an hour and a half, two hours a week, and at least here have God so radically central so that we will be affected in the battle for the soul. Th that comment, I know it can sound uh, just again like trite platitude. Let's be God-centered. We're Christians. But we can't assume it. We have to be deliberate about that focus. I want to let Steve, Steve Lawson focus us for a minute because I think what he writes here in his introduction to his book titled Made in Our Image is subtitled What Shall We Do with a User-Friendly God? He gets to the core of what we're desperate for as believers, especially in the local church. Quote, I believe that if there is one area of our theology in the church today that is most lacking it is our understanding of who God really is. Our most rudimentary problem is that we do not fully comprehend who He is. Our thoughts about Him have become very unclear, fuzzy, oblique. The result of this distorted view of deity is that it leaves everything else out of focus as well. 
Whenever we lose a right view of God, everything else gets out of perspective. A user-friendly God has become the trend of the day. A God who's made in our image. The result is a God who makes us feel comfortable. One we can control and manage and even use. This downsized version of God is a diminutive deity dependent upon us. We are not dependent upon Him. Only when our vision of God is restored will our lives and our churches be put right. A high view of God leads us to see that the church is not a corporation, but a congregation. It's not a business, but it's a body. It's not a factory, but it's a family. In such a church, God works primarily not through hyped events and programs and entertainment or even strategically designed plans per se, but primarily through His Word and by His Spirit in the converted change lives of His people. Sad to say, we have become preoccupied with everything but God. End quote. If we pursued God the way He has revealed Himself in Scripture. This is what I think Lawson's getting at. I mean, don't edit it. Try to understand it. And be shocked by it. And believe it. But if we pursued the shocking God of Scripture instead of a light hearted, market-driven, anti-thinking God which is predominant in the church culture. Maybe statements like God is radically God-centered and we ought to be too would make sense. Maybe a preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ which is the good news of being rescued from God in His holy wrath. Maybe that would actually be understood and believed by church-going people. And maybe our hearts would be more impacted with the truth of this glorious Gospel that our lives might be little bit more changed. And thus, because of that, there may be unbelievers in the end time we will see will glorify God with us when Jesus comes back. It is this 
unto the glory of God, that God may be glorified. It is this central piece that Peter has just come out of. God has saved you in order to proclaim His glory. It is this radical God-centeredness that leads Peter now in our text to cloak his exhortation to us on how to live with, and it's powerful, as foreigners, sojourners, aliens. You're not from here. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. So remember, he has just come out of saying, but you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, as those who come from a radically different world than this world, as that kind of person live in this world, we belong to a different culture. We get our values from God, from Christ, from the Gospel. That's where we learn. That's where we change. That's where we understand, huh, the culture's going somewhere different. Believers are not meant to get their life guided by advertisements on the TV. They tell you what... You're supposed to want in what will make you happy. We're not to get our values from the novels. We're not to get your values from the TV shows, from the movies. We're in it. We see it. We might participate in it. But we critically think about it as foreigners. And in this text, being foreigners, being exiles is directly connected to the command, abstain from fleshly lust. Now, that's what it literally says. The passions of the flesh. This is what he means. You have with you sinful dispositions until the grave, even though you've been born again. You're in a battle. Daily, abstain from them. The flow of chapter 2 has been, you've been chosen, He's caused you to be born again. And with that, such a significant change has happened in the heart of a Christian. In the desire factory of a Christian. That to the extent that the believer walks in the light of the truth, to that extent they feel and they act like foreigners, aliens to the culture of Southern California. Now why do I say that? Because here's the reality. Let me just say it again. A genuine believer has had something so drastically happened to the core of their being. It's called new birth. It means that the eternal God, 
the third person of the Holy Trinity, has come into a dead, literally, totally, spiritually dead to God heart. And has come to dwell. And by definition, He has changed the course of their eternity and their desires. Having done that, nevertheless, He has, in His sovereign purposes, allowed the remnants of our God-belittling sin, nature, and desires to remain. And now you're thrown into this battle. Our text calls them the, quote, passions of the flesh. That's why, therefore, real Christians need and are given the exhortation daily. Given to one and not the other. Give in to the desires of the Gospel and of Christ and don't give in to the desires of the flesh. And it's because of that reality that Peter says, therefore, we are desperate to cultivate a mindset of an alien, of a foreigner to the cultures in which we live. He's saying, know the book of your homeland. Know the constitution where your true citizenship is in heaven. Get your values, truths, doctrines from there. Not the culture. And the culture is filled with doctrines. And it's filled with values that are anti-Christ. But they're pro-your flesh. That's our battle. With that mindset of our homeland, you look at, you think about, You want to understand and deal with the philosophies of whichever cultures God has put us in. You want to understand what's going on in our culture through television, through mass media, through movies, through the internet. You got to know it, but you look at it biblically, critically, to understand which is harmful. You're in the world. You relate to the world, but we are not of the world. The simplest way to say it is you've got to be really careful of assuming that what is normal in the culture is therefore neutral. And say it's easy, but but here is... Some of us in this room, I want to, and I'm only in my 40s, but I'm old enough to know what a massive change has happened in the culture concerning homosexual activity. Just in the 1970s, the culture concerning the issue, it was still in the closet, slowly coming out. But look, the culture from the 1970s to today is so radically changed concerning that issue. And like a frog in a kettle, I promise you, it's already happening. This is what the church does when it does not vigilantly 
understand itself as foreigners and aliens and our values don't change. They're from the book. What happens in the culture eventually filters into the churches and destroys them. And that means it's filtering into professing Christians' lives individually and destroys them. There is an enemy to our soul. And at the core, the enemy to our soul, what he wants to do is use the world, use the culture in which we are dwelling, which God has put us, in order to sear our conscience so that the impact, the clarity, and the depth of the Gospel, of the Scripture, of whom God has revealed Himself to be, and of our prayer life and communion with Him, only goes an inch deep. That's his goal. And that on the other hand, that our joys and that our passions and that what really fires us up in our love for the temporal goes deep down to our bones. That's his goal. That's what he's trying to do with every one of your souls. That's the battle that we're in. And last year's battle for your soul does not suffice for today. Last year's in constant, intense times of communion with the Father through the Word, purposefully, before you got off to the day to deal with life and the passions of your flesh, does not suffice for tomorrow. We are to live in the culture. We're to think about it. We're to think about it critically in the light of the wisdom of our homeland. Here's the whole book of 1 Peter up to this point. He says, do you see what happened to you? God chose you from His foreknowledge and He, the Father, came and caused you to be born again and He produced a living hope in a truth. The truth of Christ. The Gospel. And He has filled it with glorious promises. He has laid up for you an, inher- an inheritance. Peter's saying, that's what drives you. Chapter 1, verse 8. Though you don't see Jesus, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, yet you rejoice with a joy unspeakable and filled with Glory. He's saying, that's who you are. To the extent you live in that reality, you do not try to be a weirdo in the world. That's not what foreigners and aliens mean. You actually act fairly normal. But something drives you. There's an object to the desires of your heart that is called the Gospel, the person of Christ, which is inseparable from the Christ who speaks to you in Holy Scripture. And you thus, though you're much like Him, in areas you are significantly different. And so He says, you're an alien. You're a foreigner in the world. 
Now, let me just say that in, in the context of this, this battle, our flesh, and the world is against it, the culture is against it. Within every one of us, the reason that sin happens is because we want to. That's called the passions or the desires. That's why we do what we want to do when it's sinful. Because we that feels good to lash back. That sexual sin feels good. Feels good to get more money by cheating. So we can go on and on. You, within you, it's there. It wants to do it. And the world is there to help it happen. But he says, we're desperate to cultivate a mindset in our personal lives and especially in our communal lives called churches. A mindset of, we're not from here. So I think that one of the signs that we are losing the battle for our souls and that we are having our consciences seared is a lack of appetite for communion with God through and over the Word. And I think it is a lack of an appetite for biblical, expository preaching in the church. There's a lot of the present day church culture. A lot of people are looking for churches right now. By definition, that's just the way it is. And, you know, some of us have been there, we're doing that. I've been there. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And if, if I could take what's really, okay, how are they going to pick it? Many are essentially internally saying this. Well, when I go to church, please do not give me in the church on Sunday mornings as the core of what you're doing, an explanation of the sentences in the Bible. It's not what they're looking for. It's not, I, I know it's funny, but it's not. They're not many because they're following the culture. Are not looking for, explain God's Word speaking in those three sentences and press it Against my conscience. But instead, no, no, no. Please, go home. Do your job, pastor. Kind of summarize it to yourself and put it in a little ditty. Little nice memorizing. That, make it simplistic and give it to me and then cloak it with entertaining stories. That's what I'm looking for. That's the culture at large. The culture has changed in the last hundred years. I hope you know that. If you've never read Neil Postman's book, I, I finally just read it. It's been out for over 20-some years. He's, I, don't think he's a, I don't think Postman was a Christian, but it's very insightful on what mass media has done, starting with the telegraph to radio to television. Okay. And so what has happened because of that, the church has had a tendency to purposefully not function as aliens and exiles in this world. But instead, how can we 
mirror the culture around us more for the purpose of getting more people to join our churches. Now, 20 years ago when I was in Bible college, I had to take a class called church growth. It was the, I had no clue up to that point. It was in that class I learned and realized there was a whole movement that had already been going on for a while called the church growth movement. And many things have sprung out of that in different directions. There was a movement that was founded on, based on, it was all theological. We're not going to get into theology. We're going to assume God. You, okay, you got your theologies, different denominations, different churches. Great. You got your theology. You got your ecclesiology. We're not even getting into that. But we want to help you gather more people. Assuming all that into your churches. And a lot of it is to go to Madison Avenue to find out how did you do it. How did you get more people to buy your Coca-Cola? How did you beat that other competition? And of course, you give people what they want. You advertise the way you want. Don't you? If you want to sell beer to men during sports programs, how do you advertise it? Women. Sex. Period. It's, just, it's what you do. They're smart. Well, okay. This has led to a lot of the church culture to ask unbelievers, why don't you come to church? Oh, okay. All kinds of answers they would get. What would you like in church? Hmm. I see. You don't want sentences explained. Or doctor. Okay. So, you want sermons shorter... Uh, 20, 30, oh, not sermons, excuse me. That you don't, you, that's a religious term. You take that one out. You want talks to be shorter. You want the music to be more contemporary and uppity. And then it is given to them. Okay. Let me just, I'm going to, I, I just did that to set up two quotes. David Wells back in the 90s studying the last 200 years and up to what is going on in the American Evangelical Church was one of the most significant books that I read and still have read called No Place for Truth, subtitled Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology because this has been going on for a few decades and something's happening in the American church. And, and in examining it, I think he's, in my opinion, has been dead on to what's going on, not just in the culture out there, but the culture within much of evangelical Christianity. When he writes, quote, We now have less biblical fidelity, less interest in truth, less seriousness, less depth, and less capacity to speak the Word of God to our own generation in a way that offers an alternative to what it already thinks. The older, talk about the church down through the centuries, the older orthodoxy within the church was driven by a passion for truth. The newer evangelicalism is not driven by the same passion for truth. And that is why it is often empty of theological interest. One more quote from 
from Douglas Webster, who's pretty much a nobody, but his book was penetrating to me when I read it over ten years ago. He's, he's a teaching pastor somewhere in the Midwest in the Presbyterian Church. And I think he's right on when he concludes this way. The church is not based on human opinions, no matter how positive. It is not an audience positively inclined toward Jesus. But the church is a company of committed individuals whose lives depend upon the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church must not obscure this truth by transforming a congregation into an audience or transforming proclamation or preaching into performance or transforming worship into entertainment. The distinction between opinion and biblical truth will be lost if the goal is mainly to attract more and more people to Jesus. Church attendance may grow, but true Christian individuality and community will be lost. If unchurched Harry feels perfectly at home in our churches, then chances are that we have no longer an authentic household of faith, but a popular cultural religion. End quote. The point is that we, as believers, are, by the nature of having been born again, desperate to feed upon the Word of God. Desperate for the Word of God in its original context to speak, and to convict, and to penetrate our hearts. That's what we're changed by. And you don't have to try to be different to the extent we allow God to do that to us is to the extent we are different from the world. See, the fact is, God is not merely light. He is weighty. He is holy. And to the extent we have affections and our minds moving and pursuing a correspondence with the weightiness of who God is in Scripture without editing it is to the extent we become happily serious and we become, without trying, aliens and foreigners in this world. Just different. Now, Getting close to closing up here. Notice in the text, as aliens, as foreigners, you're not of this world. You're in it. You deal with it. You want to reach it, but you're existing in it and your citizenship is in heaven. Your values come from this book. Notice now in the exhortation to battle against the flesh. That the connection is direct. 
The battle begins on the field of desires, not on the field of action or behavior. It begins on the field of desires, but it's directly connected to our behavior. Verse 11, he says, the battle's against the desires or the passions of the flesh. They are warring against your soul. And in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct, your behavior, honorable. It's the same connection that he was crystal clear with in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, when he wrote, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions or desires that were yours before you got born again. There it is. There's the command. Desires. What do you desire? You're in a war. He says, fight at the level of desires. And then Peter says, but instead, be holy in all your conduct. Passions, desires are directly connected to how we live. And that's exactly what he's saying here in verses 11 and 12. There's a battle. Fight against the passions of your sinful nature and conduct yourselves, therefore, in the world in an honorable way that shows good deeds. See, it's, it's key. See, the diff- this is the difference between legalism and walking by the Spirit through faith in God's Word and promises. It's not merely, it's Jesus, you can clean the outside of the cup, Pharisees, but the inside's full of dead men's bones and hypocrisy. We're desperate at the level daily of desires. Remember in the context how he started off chapter 2. Since you have tasted, it's not physical, it's heart, it's where you live. It's what you desire or don't. Since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord to you coming through the Gospel of Christ. So this conduct in the Christian life is not an exhortation to pursue being a Pharisee. It is the exhortation to battle the fight of faith. Meaning, to fight to trust God's goodness, His promises to you, over the promises that your flesh says will bring you happiness. This, what Peter's laying out, of the Christian life and the battle of desires which, which are connected to how you live, is Romans chapter 7. So that meant something to some of you. If it doesn't, it is this reality. If you become born again, you feel something. At times, what I really want to do, God, I want to love you more. I find it I don't. And that which I don't want to do, given to that pastor of us, I did again. Okay. Is that you? If you feel what Paul's feeling there, that's a really good sign you're a believer. See, the bad thing is, in your sin, if you embrace it, and there's not something within you that, that says, 
yeah, I did it because I loved it in that sense, but I have a love-hate relationship with this body of death that is dragged around with me since I've been converted to Christ. Okay, if you battle sin and hate it, it's a really good sign that you're a believer. This is what Peter's saying. This is why you and I and every Christian needs constantly the exhortation. Battle against the passions of the flesh. You'll see the results in what you do in your content. Let me just give a couple examples. How does it work out? See, it's always a battle at its core. Am I trusting God's promises which cannot be disconnected from His commands? Am I trusting Him that He is truly whom He said He will be for me? Or am I trusting this sinful desire that's becoming overwhelming to me? When I sin, or when you sin, at that very moment, and this is part of, of the Christian life, that means purely, biblically and logically, that the greater desire was trust in the sin than it was in the promise of God which would have kept you from the sin. So you got a mouse in front of you and desires are really real to go to a pornography site. The battle comes, for instance, God says to you through Paul, in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now the battle's on. And at that moment, because passions are passions, because passions are passions. They're real, and you desire it. The answer isn't just don't do it. The answer is God. This is why we've been talking every week now for the last at least six. We're desperate for the Word to penetrate our memorizations, our minds, reading prayerfully with quantity time. Because at that moment, I'm desperate. Do I believe God's command? Flee youthful passions. There's righteousness which is ultimately more satisfying than if you give in to that passion of the flesh. I could give, we can sit here for hours and give hundreds of examples. There's just going to be one more. You're so, so angry. And you want to kill that person. Or you want to hurt them badly. You, you want to use your tongue to let them know. See how you can totally tear them down because you feel so wronged and damaged. Okay, that's a passion. And you feel it? Of the flesh. And God says in Romans chapter 12 verse 19 to you, Never 
Avenge yourselves. There's the command. But listen to why. This is where the promise. And here's, here's the question. This is why it always comes back down to, am I trusting Him? That's the battle. Because God says this to Paul. Never avenge yourselves, but instead leave it to the wrath of God. Because it's written. Here's God speaking. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. In anger, passion, there is a place where we can come during that day and actually believe by the power of His Spirit you will do what's right, God. You Okay. The only opposite thing is this. Is that really, I can say all I want, but I'm going to lash back is saying, I don't trust you to really do what's right. Is that making sense? That's the battle. So then finally then, Peter says, doing this battle in our Christian lives, in your families, with your wives, with your kids, in your business, as an employee, as an employer, on the ball fields, and everywhere else we are in culture. He says, somehow, the, that which springs out of this passion, this battle in the life, is evangelistic. How does that happen? Because I think Peter's saying, the way we live points to what we really hope in. And that's the gospel. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, end up in the day of Christ coming back, glorifying Him for their own salvation. Don't let what they say be true. About you. Real every day, the essence of the church, meaning the body of Christ, the essence of local church life is at its core not program based. It's everyday living, it's alien living. Listen, if you flip over to chapter 4, watch. How Paul, I mean Peter, works this out for one second. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Watch this dynamic of what he's saying in our text. We'll come back to it. The time that is past suffices or suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He says, the time passed before you became a Christian. You had long enough to live that way. It's over. He says, now, with respect to this, they, your buddies, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Speak evil of you. Evangelism is happening. 
when they malign you, not because you're some do-gooder, you're different. Your passions are elsewhere. That is part of evangelism. And now watch how Peter describes this in chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What the heck? How do you see hope? Think about it. People see what the world, what the culture outside of Christ hopes in by what they spend their time and their money on. And we just gave a list of some. Drinking parties, orgies, idolatries, money making. We can continue to add from the New Testament. You can see it by their conduct. What the world hopes in. And it goes to a stage. <laughs> and, and therefore they say, They malign you. They don't like it that your hope is not in what they hope in. And then on the other hand, they see something about a believer and the Christian community. Maybe ten years down the line. Okay, I give in. I've bad-mouthed you enough, but tell me, what is it? Because this action, the way you spend your money and your time, what you do with your life and how you do it, there's something about this. You're you're hoping it's something that I can't see it, but so tell me what it is. There's some invisible object there, and there is. It's called the gospel and all the promises laid up in it. They see it. They see that. How do you live like that? Because I know you. You have had as much tragedy or pain, setbacks as the rest of us. <laughs> Yet somehow there's a contentment about who you are. You, you don't have the white picket fence like you're supposed to have and you're happy. What is it? Or you have all what the world says you're supposed to have, but you don't seem to trust in it like the rest do. Tell me. And then Peter says, be ready to give the reason. Your life is connected to that conversation. And the conversation isn't your testimony directly. It may come in, but your conversation is to tell them the reason. And that's called the gospel. And you give it to them. And many of them And Jesus' second coming will be standing with us, glorifying God for their salvation. Let it be our daily devotion to wake up and know we're in a battle and thus run to God in the Word prayerfully to energize our souls so that those desires overcome the desires of God all the sin which will rise as a temptation that day, ultimately to the glory of God in reaching unbelievers. Let's pray. Father, as a desperate, broken, sinful, 
yet saved man, I pray on behalf of these people, your people, for the miracle of your promise to continue to sanctify, to work on, to grow, and to cause all whom you've called to yourself to persevere in this battle of faith over the sinful passions of the soul. And give us, we say, give to us in our personal evangelism a harvest of souls to the glory of your great name. Amen.